Welcome. This is the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm Dr. Michael Beerer. This week, December 20th, 2018, we feature articles on adjuvant chemotherapy for pancreatic cancer, zoledronate and fractures in women with osteopenia, sorafenib for desmoid tumors, the global incidence of stroke, the causes of death in children and adolescents, and hamartin and kidney development, a review article on cancer survivorship, a case report of a man with diplopia and proptosis of the left eye, and perspective articles on the structural differential and on training in sexual and gender minority health. Fulfirinox, or gemcitabine, as adjuvant therapy for pancreatic cancer, by Thierry Conroy, from the Institut de Cancerologie de Lorraine, Vendeuvre les Nancy, France. Among patients with metastatic pancreatic cancer, combination chemotherapy with fluorouracil, leucovorin, ironotecan, and oxaliplatin, fulfirinox, leads to longer overall survival than gemcitabine therapy. In this study, 493 patients with resected pancreatic ductal adenocarcinoma were randomly assigned to receive a modified fulfirinox regimen without bolus fluorouracil or gemcitabine for 24 weeks. At a median follow-up of 33.6 months, the median disease-free survival was 21.6 months in the modified fulfirinox group and 12.8 months in the gemcitabine group. The disease-free survival rate at three years was 39.7% in the modified fulfirinox group and 21.4% in the gemcitabine group. The median overall survival was 54.4 months in the modified fulfirinox group and 35 months in the gemcitabine group. The overall survival rate at three years was 63.4% in the modified fulfirinox group and 48.6% in the gemcitabine group. Adverse events of grade 3 or 4 occurred in 75.9% of the patients in the modified fulfirinox group and in 52.9% of those in the gemcitabine group. One patient in the gemcitabine group died from toxic effects, interstitial pneumonitis. Adjuvant therapy with a modified fulfirinox regimen led to significantly longer survival than gemcitabine among patients with resected pancreatic cancer at the expense of a higher incidence of toxic effects. In an editorial, Hedy Kindler from University of Chicago Medicine writes that recent advances in precision medicine and immunotherapy have transformed the once bleak outlook for many patients with solid tumors, including melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. Unfortunately, these newer approaches have not affected the dismal outcome for patients with pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Only 8% of patients with this disease are cured, the lowest rate among any solid tumors. Within the next decade, pancreatic cancer is projected to become 
the second leading cause of death from cancer in the United States, which reflects the inadequacy of our current treatment options. Surgery is the only potential cure, but fewer than 20% of patients are candidates for resection because of extensive local involvement or early distant spread. Even after curative surgery, less than 4% of patients will live 10 years or more. Pancreatic cancer generally recurs within six months if no postoperative treatment is given. Even with adjuvant chemotherapy, most patients will survive less than three years. The impressive results of the trial by Conroy and colleagues represents the culmination of more than a decade of careful work that initially established fulfirinox as a standard treatment for advanced pancreatic cancer. The remarkable results that have been achieved with adjuvant-modified fulfirinox therapy in this trial have now changed the standard of care for many patients with resectable tumors. However, the majority of patients with pancreatic cancer present with far more advanced disease. For them, this remains a recalcitrant cancer. Fracture Prevention with Zoledronate in Older Women with Osteopenia by Ian Reed from the University of Auckland, New Zealand. Bisphosphonates prevent fractures in patients with osteoporosis, but their efficacy in women with osteopenia is unknown. Most fractures in postmenopausal women occur in those with osteopenia, so therapies that are effective in women with osteopenia are needed. In this six-year trial involving 2,000 women with osteopenia who were 65 years of age or older, participants were randomly assigned to receive four infusions of either zoledronate at a dose of 5 milligrams or normal saline at 18-month intervals. At baseline, the mean age was 71 years, the T-score at the femoral neck was negative 1.6, and the median 10-year risk of hip fracture was 2.3%. A fragility fracture occurred in 190 women in the placebo group and in 122 women in the zoledronate group. The number of women that would need to be treated to prevent the occurrence of a fracture in one woman was 15. As compared with the placebo group, women who received zoledronate had a lower risk of nonvertebral fragility fractures, symptomatic fractures, vertebral fractures, and height loss. The risk of nonvertebral or vertebral fragility fractures was significantly lower in women with osteopenia who received zoledronate than in women who received placebo. Clifford Rosen from the Maine Medical Center Research Institute, Scarborough, writes in an editorial that the current trial showed, with sufficient statistical power, that zoledronate administered less frequently than once a year was associated with not only a greater increase in bone mass than that observed in the placebo group, but also a significantly lower risk of vertebral and nonvertebral fractures. In addition, six years of intermittent treatment with zoledronate resulted in relatively few adverse events, although the current trial was not powered to assess more rare side effects, such as osteonecrosis of the jaw and atypical femoral fractures. 
Taken together, the results of this trial should have an effect on clinical practice. Given the effectiveness of infrequent administration of zoledronate in reducing the risk of fragility fracture, this treatment can certainly be added to our armamentarium for treating osteoporosis, and it would represent an approach that would not be hindered by adherence issues. But just as importantly, this trial reminds us that risk assessment and treatment decisions go well beyond bone mineral density and should focus particularly on age and a history of previous fractures. Sorafenib for Advanced and Refractory Desmoid Tumors by Mrinal Gounder from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, New York. Desmoid tumors, also referred to as aggressive fibromatosis, are connective tissue neoplasms that can arise in any anatomical location and infiltrate the mesentery, neurovascular structures, and visceral organs. There is no standard of care. In this Phase three trial, 87 patients with progressive, symptomatic, or recurrent desmoid tumors were randomly assigned to receive either serafinib once daily or matching placebo. With a median follow-up of 27.2 months, the two-year progression-free survival rate was 81% in the serafinib group and 36% in the placebo group. Crossover to the serafinib group was permitted for patients in the placebo group who had disease progression. Before crossover, the objective response rate was 33% in the serafinib group and 20% in the placebo group. The median time to an objective response among patients who had a response was 9.6 months in the serafinib group and 13.3 months in the placebo group. The objective responses are ongoing. Among patients who received serafinib, the most frequently reported adverse events were grade 1 or 2 events of rash, 73%, fatigue, 67%, hypertension, 55%, and diarrhea, 51%. Among patients with progressive, refractory, or symptomatic desmoid tumors, Sorafenib significantly prolonged progression-free survival and induced durable responses. Global, Regional, and Country-Specific Lifetime Risks of Stroke, 1990-2016, by the GBD 2016 Lifetime Risk of Stroke Collaborators. The lifetime risk of stroke at the regional, country, and global level were estimated using data from the Global Burden of Disease, GBD study, 2016, which was a comprehensive study of the prevalence of major diseases. The estimated global lifetime risk of stroke from the age of 25 years onward was 24.9%. The risk among men was 24.7%, and the risk among women was 25.1%. The risk of ischemic stroke was 18.3%, and the risk of hemorrhagic stroke was 8.2%. Countries were categorized into quintiles of the Sociodemographic Index, SDI, and in high SDI, high middle SDI, 
and low SDI countries, the estimated lifetime risk of stroke was 23.5%, 31.1% highest risk, and 13.2% lowest risk, respectively. The highest estimated lifetime risks of stroke according to GBD region were in East Asia, 38.8%, Central Europe, 31.7%, and Eastern Europe, 31.6%. And the lowest risk was in Eastern Sub-Saharan Africa, 11.8%. The mean global lifetime risk of stroke increased from 22.8% in 1990 to 24.9% in 2016, a relative increase of 8.9%. The competing risk of death from any cause other than stroke was considered in this calculation. In 2016, the global lifetime risk of stroke from the age of 25 years onward was approximately 25% among both men and women. There was geographic variation in the lifetime risk of stroke, with the highest risks in East Asia, Central Europe, and Eastern Europe. Cancer Survivorship, a review article by Charles Shapiro from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, Uptown, New York. Advances in cancer screening and early detection, improvements in therapeutics, and supportive care all contribute to decreasing cancer mortality. There will be an estimated 26 million survivors in 2040, the majority of whom will be in their 60s, 70s, or 80s. Nearly every healthcare provider will encounter cancer survivors. At present, the care of cancer survivors is often an afterthought, tends to be fragmentary, and is not well integrated into the mainstream of cancer care. Also, the best models for providing survivor care remain undefined. Some models exist, but there are scant data on their effectiveness in improving survivorship outcomes. But survivors face a wide range of medical and psychosocial challenges that need to be planned for and appropriately managed. Survivorship starts at the time of diagnosis and lasts throughout the lifespan. This holistic definition encourages clinicians to think about the care of survivors as an integral part of the cancer care continuum. Included in the definition of survivors are family members, friends, and caregivers. The primary reason for including these persons is that in most cases, cancer is not experienced alone. The two most pressing challenges are meeting the needs of the growing population of older cancer survivors and providing care for survivors of childhood cancer who have treatment-related cancers and coexisting medical conditions. An 18-year-old man with diplopia and proptosis of the left eye. A case record of the Massachusetts General Hospital by Daniel Lefebvre and colleagues. An 18-year-old man presented with diplopia and proptosis of the left eye. Approximately 33 months earlier, eye pain and periorbital swelling developed on the right side. The pain was constant, and the use of ophthalmic ketotifin fumarate did not provide relief. Examination revealed visual acuity of 20 over 25 in the right eye and 20 over 30 in the left eye, 
along with three millimeters of proptosis of the right eye and swelling, erythema, and ptosis of the right eyelid. Ophthalmic fluoromethylone and oral doxycycline were prescribed. The proptosis, ptosis, and eyelid swelling persisted. Prednisone was prescribed. The pain and eyelid swelling diminished and the visual acuity normalized, but the proptosis and visual field restriction persisted. On current examination, the patient had a Cushingoid appearance. He had exotropia and minimal proptosis of the left eye, pallor of the right optic disc, and a right inferior central defect on visual field testing. MRI showed enlargement and increased enhancement of the left medial and inferior rectus muscles with a central area of hypoenhancement of the medial rectus muscle. Although granulomatosis with polyangiitis does not commonly affect the extraocular muscles directly, the appearance of the medial rectus muscle on imaging with central vacuolation suggestive of necrosis would fit with a necrotizing process such as granulomatosis with polyangiitis. An orbital biopsy was performed. The major causes of death in children and adolescents in the United States. A special report by Rebecca Cunningham from the University of Michigan Injury Prevention Center, Ann Arbor. In 2016, reflecting relatively good health, children and adolescents accounted for less than 2% of all U.S. deaths. Declines in deaths from infectious disease or cancer had given way to increases in deaths from injury-related causes, including motor vehicle crashes, firearm injuries, and the emerging problem of opioid overdoses. Although injury deaths have traditionally been viewed as accidents, injury prevention science that evolved during the latter half of the 20th century increasingly shows that such deaths are preventable with evidence-based approaches. This report summarizes the leading causes of death in children and adolescents in the United States. When the authors examined all deaths among children and adolescents according to intent, unintentional injuries were the most common cause of injury-related death, 57%, and among intentional injuries, suicide was slightly more common, 21%, than homicide, 20%. Motor vehicle crashes were the leading cause of death for children and adolescents, representing 20% of all deaths. Firearm-related injuries were second, responsible for 15% of deaths. Despite improvements in pediatric cancer care, malignant neoplasms were the third leading cause of death. The leading causes of death varied between younger and older children. Among children 1 to 4 years of age, Drowning was the most common cause of death. Among adolescents, injury deaths from motor vehicle crashes, firearms, and suffocation were the three leading causes. Deaths related to firearms were the leading cause of death among black youth and occurred at a rate 3.7 times as high as the rate among white youth. 
American Indian and Alaska Native youth had the highest rates of death from motor vehicle crashes or suffocation in comparison with other races or ethnic groups. In contrast, white youth had a rate of death due to drug overdose or poisoning that was nearly twice as high as the rates observed in other races or ethnic groups. In an editorial, Edward Campion writes that children in America are dying or being killed at rates that are shameful. The sad fact is that a child or adolescent in the United States is 57% more likely to die by the age of 19 years than those in other wealthy nations. In 2016, there were more than 20,000 deaths of Americans 1 to 19 years of age. Physical injury accounted for 61% of this tragic total. These tragedies leave enduring pain and may be the most stressful thing that can happen to parents and siblings. The problem is not deficiencies in medical care. It is the high rate of lethal traumatic injury. Firearm injury, the second leading cause of death, is only a minor contributor to childhood mortality in other developed countries. The biggest barrier to preventing the many deaths from injury is the sense of helpless inevitability conveyed by the word accident. Car crashes and lethal gunshots are not random results of fate. Both individuals and the larger society need to understand that there is much that can be done to reduce the rate of fatal trauma. Strong leadership by the medical and public health communities is needed. Education, awareness, and very feasible interventions can help protect children and adolescents from the six top causes of death from trauma, namely those related to motor vehicles, firearms, suffocation, drowning, drug overdose or poisoning, and fire or burns. We are living in a divisive era in which there are few areas of consensus and agreement. Perhaps one of the few core beliefs that all can agree on is that deaths in childhood and adolescence are tragedies that we must find ways to prevent. Tackling TSC1 to Promote Nephrogenesis, a Clinical Implications of Basic Research article by Julie Inglefinger. A pivotal event in kidney development is the formation of nephrons, the number of which is inversely proportional to the risk of kidney disease. During development, nephrogenic progenitor cells exit the niche between the ureteric bud and the cap mesenchyme and differentiate into the cells that make up the nephron. Within the niche, they proliferate. Older cells are more likely than younger cells to exit the niche. Recent studies have elucidated the molecular signals that induce the retention of cells within the niche. One of these signals is produced by hamartin, a protein encoded by TSC1, which has pathogenic variants that cause tuberous sclerosis. A recent study showed that genetic suppression of hamartin resulted in a 25% increase in nephrons in mice. Structural Differential 
A 32-Year-Old Man with Persistent Wrist Pain, a perspective article by Cheryl Seymour from the Maine Mobile Health Program, Augusta. In this case study in social medicine, a man working as a raker of wild blueberries presents to a mobile clinic in Maine with pain in his right wrist. Maine's blueberry season is four weeks long, and farm workers rake as much as 12 hours each day. Mr. H. had noticed the onset of pain in his right wrist earlier in the harvest. The pain increased with continued work until his wrist was red and noticeably swollen. The physician who saw Mr. H. had recently been visited by several patients with the same condition, acute wrist tendonitis with pain, erythema, warmth, and swelling over the extensor and ulnar aspects of the wrist. Recognizing that Mr. H. had a repetitive motion injury from raking blueberries, the physician ventured out into the field to analyze the causes and collaborate in finding solutions. Physicians can generate a structural differential to help unlock intractable clinical problems. A structural differential delineates the social, political, and economic factors that may be influencing a patient's health and health care and facilitates responses to the modifiable factors. Steps to generate a structural differential may include intentionally expanding the scope of clinical inquiry to include structural factors, using tools such as the Structural Vulnerability Checklist to frame and inform a broad list of hypotheses, gathering perspectives from outside the exam room, learning about the historical context, and partnering with patients in their communities to clarify and prioritize relevant issues and actions. Training in Sexual and Gender Minority Health Expanding Education to Reach All Clinicians, a perspective article by Kevin Ard from the Fenway Institute, Boston. The focus of sexual and gender minority, SGM, health education has shifted to cover training for all clinicians, and training has been increasingly mandated by health centers and hospital leaders, which has created new challenges and opportunities. First, Broad-based education has forced educators to ask fundamental questions about how best to conceptualize, prioritize, teach, and assess SGM-related knowledge. SGM healthcare encompasses a range of competencies that fall into two broad categories. The first focuses on sensitive communication strategies and welcoming healthcare environments, such as the use of inclusive terminology during medical visits, best practices in collection of data on sexual orientation and gender identity, and policies and forms that avoid assumptions about sexual orientation and gender identity. The second relates to specific clinical services and expertise, such as gender-affirming hormone therapy for transgender patients or sexually transmitted infection screening for men who have sex with men. In addition, as the shift toward mandatory SGM health education continues, encounters with trainees or clinicians who know little about such concepts or who express reluctance to learn about SGM people have become more frequent. 
appeals to professional competence, the ability to care for any person who walks through the practice's doors, often successfully engage clinicians who are initially ambivalent. Persons of non-binary gender, awareness, visibility, and health disparities, a perspective article by Walter Lizewski from the University of Minnesota, Minneapolis. In many cultures throughout history, some people have identified as neither male nor female, or as non-binary. As our society's concept of gender evolves, so does the visibility of contemporary non-binary people. Yet many members of the medical community may not know how to interact with non-binary patients respectfully or recognize their unique needs and barriers to care. Non-binary persons often receive inadequate medical care or face discrimination. Among gender minority patients, 19% have been refused treatment on the basis of their gender identity. 23% have avoided treatment in the previous year for fear of discrimination. And 33% have avoided medical care because of cost. Gender minority patients may not receive age-appropriate cancer screenings or anticipatory guidance if a physician makes assumptions about their sex, gender, or anatomy. Clinicians can use an organ inventory to document the presence or absence of specific organs to ensure appropriate screenings and evaluation. For example, a non-binary person with a cervix and breasts should undergo age-appropriate pap smears and mammograms. Contraception should be discussed with patients with a functioning uterus and ovaries, and erectile dysfunction may be a concern for patients with a penis. As part of their gender affirmation, some non-binary people may pursue body modification through surgical procedures, hormone therapy, or both creating a welcoming environment, educating healthcare teams, and advancing crucial research will improve the care of our non-binary patients. Our Images in Clinical Medicine features a 46-year-old man who presented to the emergency department with worsening chronic left knee pain. Fourteen years before presentation, he had sustained a gunshot wound to the left knee. X-rays obtained at the time of that injury showed a metallic bullet embedded in the posterior weight-bearing surface of the lateral femoral condyle and metallic debris within the joint. No surgery was performed to remove the bullet at that time. At the current presentation, the physical examination was notable for a large effusion in the left knee. Repeat X-rays showed that in addition to changes consistent with arthritis in the joint, the bullet had fragmented into metallic particles throughout the joint and synovium. Laboratory studies revealed microcytic anemia with a hemoglobin level of 9.1 grams per deciliter and an elevated blood lead level. The mini-mental state examination score was 24. Scores ranged from 0 to 30, with lower scores indicating poorer cognitive performance. The patient showed no other symptoms of chronic lead poisoning. Intraarticular bullets should be removed surgically at the time of the injury. In addition to causing joint damage, intraarticular bullets can fragment and dissolve in synovial fluid, leading to lead absorption 
and delayed symptomatic lead poisoning. The patient received chelation therapy. Surgical management with a left knee synovectomy was planned, but the patient left the hospital before surgery and was lost to follow-up. An 18-year-old man presented to the emergency department with chest pain. He had a history of Kawasaki's disease, which had been diagnosed when he was 11 years of age. Despite treatment with intravenous immune globulin, coronary artery aneurysms were detected on imaging. At the time of the current presentation, his medications included aspirin and warfarin. An electrocardiogram showed ST-segment elevations in leads V1 to V3. Emergency coronary angiography revealed occlusion of the left anterior descending artery. Kawasaki's disease is an acute idiopathic self-limiting vasculitis that primarily affects children. Clinical features include fever, non-exudative conjunctivitis in both eyes, mucositis, cervical lymphadenopathy, polymorphous rash, and changes in the hands and feet. Because not all these features are necessarily present, and there is no specific diagnostic test for Kawasaki's disease, the diagnosis may be missed in childhood or occur at such an early age that the adult patient has no recollection of illness. Affected children are at risk for cardiovascular complications. The patient underwent coronary artery bypass surgery. At follow-up three years after presentation, he was doing well and had no further cardiac symptoms. This concludes our summary. Let us know what you think about our audio summaries. Any comments or suggestions may be sent to audio at nejm.org. Thank you for listening.